You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram, kids, at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Today's guest is one of those rare artists who is known as much for her brilliant performances as for her wonderful writing. Since the 1970s, she has been charming audiences with her incredible voice, while at the same time, offstage, creating new works that ignited their imaginations. As an actress, she has appeared on stage in one of my personal favorites, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, a Hair, Ain't Misbehaving, for which she was Tony-nominated, as well as on screen in Pose, where she plays dance teacher Helena St. Rogers, also M. Night Shyamalan's films Glass and Unbreakable, as well as an award-winning playwright. She has given us Phenom, Grace, Flight, The Night Watcher, In Real Life, Neat and Pretty Fire, and that, you guys, is just one-tenth of her credits as an artist. I don't know when she sleeps, but we'll find out soon enough to tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Nell Carter, Jeremy O'Harris, Sam Gold, Susan Laurie Parks, David S. Bjornson, Daniel Sullivan, Lynn Nottage, Athol Fugard, George C. Wolf, my God, and so many more. Here is the incredible two time Obie Award winner, Charlene Woodard. Charlene, how are you today? Well, I'm super after that amazing introduction. Oh, thank you for letting us. To hear all these things about myself is lovely. (laughs) And all true, all true. Okay, so before before we went on air, Charlene, we were talking about um, your your childhood growing up, which is also, I know, a a huge foundation in your playwriting. Can you discuss a little bit about the, the two... Uh, lands that you grew up in, really, Albany and the South. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Albany, New York, and my mother's family was from Savannah, Georgia, in the country outside of Savannah. My father's family, his, his parents were from Mississippi. Shibuta, Mississippi. And they all migrated. They all did that big migration, you know, um, Uh, And I grew up in Albany, where my mom met my father. But it was very important to our family that we know both sides. So every summer, until I was 13 and had working papers, I had to go. I went down south to Savannah and um, spent time there learning what it was like 
um, to live in the South uh, as opposed to what it was like to live up in Albany, New York. The South mm. was totally different. And even as children, we had def different rules to live by as soon as we crossed that Mason-Dixon line, you know, and our like, innocence was taken mm. pretty quickly. And what were some of those differences that you observed? Well, first of all, um, uh, we drove, my father drove mm -hmm. and they packed a big picnic and picnic basket. And, you know, and right from the beginning, my sister and I, there were only two of us at the beginning. Um, I'm the oldest of five, but mm -hmm. my sister Allie and I sat in, in, in between that basket of chicken sandwiches and pie. And it was fantastic. And we stopped off at places. We kept saying, can we have the chicken? No, 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 no. They wouldn't let you because <laughs> we would eat at different places on the road. But back then, once we passed the Mason-Dixon line, it was very limited where we could eat, where we could go to the bathroom. And my mom, her whole thing would change once we passed that Mason-Dixon mm. line. And if you have to use the ladies, and they'd say, hold it, hold it. Because if we stopped, and went to a filling station, there was a colored toilet, which had no door, which you could smell 10 feet, 20 feet away. Uh, toilet paper was already running out of it. And my mother would yank our arms and bring us back into the car and say, hold it, hold it. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. Until my father would find, uh, I'll never forget that day when he pulled over un underneath a big, moss-laden tree that had a picnic table next to the road. Mm -hmm. And my mother yanked us out and took us to the, to the uh, weeds, the high weeds. And uh, we could see in the, in, the, in, the, in the distance, we could see people in a field picking vegetables or something, you know. And we, my sister and I, were excited. Oh, wow, we get to pee in the woods, you know, like that. And my mother was mortified. And then mm -hmm. she'd get us back out there. Daddy had set the picnic table mm -hmm. with all, there was the chicken. There was the pie. There was the Coca-Cola that he opened up, you know, the bottle mm -hmm. of Coca-Cola. Yeah. And we sat on one side of the picnic table and they sat on the other side facing the, facing the field. And my father, I remember my father's arm around my mother's back and she was shaking because she hated the segregation, the Jim Crow, the otherworldliness of the South back then when we were uh, going there, going back and forth. Um, but um, we loved it because it was rural. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't know any better for the longest time. Um, uh, the food was all the seafood and the man that would drive around my grandmother's neighborhood calling out vegetables from his vegetable truck. And oh, it was kind of marvelous. We could walk barefoot, yeah. you know, you know, because it was a dirt red clay roads, yep. things like that. So we loved it um, oh, until we realized it was dangerous. Mm -hmm. And how did your family explain to you these two worlds, that in, in Albany it was one way and down south it was another? What they do is they don't explain it to you. Mm -hmm. I think that generation was hoping that we'd get away with it. Mm. 
So there was never any explanation except that you are black. Mm. Uh, this was for my going to school period because I went to school. I was put into a special program early on of um, academically talented mm. students and uh, from fourth to 12th grade. And in that group, there were only uh, three black kids. And my mom and dad would let us know, you know, you are black. You, well, back then I was a Negro, but mm-hmm. <laughs> that they that you are going to be it's going to be expected that you can't keep up. It's going to be expected that you don't belong in the group. It's going to be expected, and you are going to uh, become. And the word she likes to use was, "You are going to be undeniable. You are going to be undeniable." My my mother, who came from such oppression in Savannah and fled it, uh, she made sure that her children, especially, you know, I'm, I'm her oldest, would not have to handle what she had to handle. And if mm. I did, and when I did, it was different. I had tools. And she said, you, you are, and she, she would hold it up. You are a Negro and you are brilliant and you can do everything better than everybody because you know both worlds she said, I know both worlds. I did. I, I grew up knowing, I grew up in the dominant culture. And every day after school, I came back to my neighborhood, which was a really great neighborhood called Arbor Hill um, of uh, very hardworking parents that everybody took pride in the fact that they were all, um, they all had jobs. All the fathers would wash their cars up the street on Sunday afternoon. You know, all the kids would play together. Those were the days when we would all like go up to school six and play kickball the whole block, yeah. you know, block parties, mm-hmm. you know, those were the days, you know, they were also the days when I went looking for my history because mm-hmm. I went mm-hmm. to school with Jewish girls and mm-hmm. in seventh grade, everyone was being bat mitzvahed. Mm-hmm. And the boys were being bonded. And I'm like, what is that? And they went to Hebrew school. They were teaching me everything. Mm-hmm. Everything. The Hebrew alphabet and the history of the Jews. I knew so much about the history of the Jews and the Holocaust and everything. And one day, my auntie, who had come up from down south with grandmama to live with us after granddaddy died, she asked me, what about us? Mm-hmm. Where did we come from? And that sent me on a quest to find out my history, find out about it, because it was not taught in school. I say in one of my plays, we only knew about George Washington Carver, Crispus Attucks, and um, you, you know, I knew about uh, it was it was it was rec- it was ridiculous how they spent uh, three pages on the Civil War. So I went to State University of Albany. Mm-hmm. I took the bus there. They had a, a free bus near my school and made friends with students there and, the, and, made, and made friends with the library, the librarian. And they just let me, they just opened up my whole world to who I am, who I come from, whose shoulders I'm standing on. Yeah. And you see, without knowing that, you know, I watched my girlfriends who get bought mitzvah and after that they were considered women because they knew. They had knowledge of their people, history. And I said, well, I will do the same. And I will call myself a grown woman, even though I'm 15. <laughs> I right? Love that. 
How wow. Yes. Wow, wow, wow. And then yeah. at, at what point, Charlene, did you start to then transition into expressing yourself publicly as a performer and as an artist? Um, what happened is when I got to 10th grade, I had an English teacher. He also taught us humanities. He was head of a theater group. And his name was John Veely. And I joined that theater group because he was so great in class with, you know, Shakespeare and uh, the Greeks. I just, I, I, would, I would follow him anywhere. And it was there that, and he didn't like musicals. So we all did like Tennessee Williams. I did This Property is <laughs> Condemned. I did, you know, we did Antigone, of course. We did uh, Romeo and Juliet. We did these kind of things. But uh, in my senior year, he was thinking, what are we going to do for you, Charlene? Do you know? Mm-hmm. I, was, I, I was now like the senior and the best actor. And I knew I, I always brought music into things that we did. Whatever we did, um, I was doing something extra with it. He said, what can we do? And John Veely said, we will write our own play. And John Veely said, you find your friends because all the black kids back then, they had them in the annex. I was in the main building with all the white kids, but the blacks in Albany were all in the annex. I went to the annex and gave out posters and said, come audition, bring a song, bring a poem, bring a dance, bring anything, but be at the theater tomorrow, or you know, at a certain time, a certain date, and be there with your talent on parade, and yes. um, we're, do- we're gonna make a play. And they came. And there were how many of us? Maybe I think there were 13 of us. Mm. And we created a play about growing up in Albany. That's where I first, you know, and it was political because mm. I knew so much about and, and we researched Albany and slavery in Albany and, you know, all these things that our community didn't even know. Yeah. It was called Anyone Round My Goal Is It. That's so good. And it had music. We had a band. We had, but it was, and it was, it was the, the performers were all black. Yeah. Which was a big uproar to the, the parents, you know, that of course. said, you know, our kids, they need to be in this. It's like, well, how many years have all of these plays been all white? You know, oh. so we, you know, I, that's where I started feeling powerful because I had this teacher that ushered us into a place, even our Antigone, it was political. You know, it was all about, you know, <laughs> I think we were dealing with Richard Nixon at the time and he was based, of course. Was based on Nixon and, you know, it was, I, I loved that. And then when I came to yeah. New York City and met George Seawolf, he lived down the street from me. And I did his first musical called, uh, what was it? Uh, Paradise? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Paradise for him. And, um, and made friends with him. And George brought politics, social change and politics mm-hmm. and all this stuff into his work. Mm-hmm. And he made the audience, I felt they would feel like uncomfortable uh, a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed that because mm-hmm. I believe when you walk into the theater, you should walk out differently than when you came in. Mm-hmm. And uh, you certainly did that with a George C. Wolf play. Yeah. So yeah. he was another influence on me on how to, um, you know, 
bring our life, our real existence onto the stage mm -hmm. and share it with the world because the world did not know. Right. Yeah. How did you come to, you know, when you're going back to picking schools and stuff to go to, why Chicago? How come, uh, how did that uh, come into play with what's now called <laughs> I, DePaul University? Right. But I chose Chicago basically because my boyfriend at the time <laughs> was at University of Chicago. Like you do. Like you do. And Alan Harris said, I know where you should go. The Goodman School of Drama. And okay. I, I auditioned, had a three-hour audition. John Billy wrote me great reference. You know, I had all, I, I, I just got in there and that changed my world because mm. it was complete, um, I was, I was bathed in everything that has to do with the theater, 24-7, you know, and I was in heaven there. Never missed a day of school. It was just really kind of marvelous. Uh, school, but Chicago, I couldn't believe how segregated that was, huh. you know? Mm -hmm. it, that whole South and West Side was black, and the North Side was all white. And even when I hung out with my friends from school, people would say, uh, what are you doing up here? Mm -hmm. It was terrible. I I only went to school there. I and then yeah. you know, I and, I stayed I stayed with an auntie there um, on the south side, and but when school was over, I would hightail it back to the east. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome yeah. home. Um, so I was so curious when you were auditioning for school. Do you remember what your pieces were? Sure. My classical was French Renaissance comedy Moliere. Mm -hmm. The Escapades of Scapin. <laughs> and I played Zerbinetta. Okay. And so I did a, one of her monologues. And for the modern, I did Ennui's version of Antigone. Wow. And so I tooled together uh, a monologue for that. I, for my modern. Impressive. Impressive. I love that. I feel so low class. My God, those are good names. Okay. Um, so, so then after, after you got done in Chicago, did you go right back to Albany or did you come to New York and start pounding the pavement? When I got out of there, I came to New York. I landed in LaGuardia Airport with two suitcases and a violin. <laughs> a violin? Oh, I played violin since fourth grade. Yes. In school, I was in all city orchestra oh, all yeah. through those years. I uh, ushered for the Albany Symphony Orchestra so that I could see, I could be a part of every concert. And uh, oh, yeah. So, and the, I had that, you know, I call her Josephine. And we all landed at LaGuardia <clears throat> Airport. And immediately I moved in with my boyfriend, who was now living in New York City, ahead of huh. me. And uh, which, you know, I, I knew that was temporary because he was up in there like five floor walk up. You know, it was horrific. <laughs> you could smell cigar smoke all the way no. up. He's up in there having the time of his life being this rom romantic kind of, you know, I'm Ernest Hemingway typing away writing. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-uh. I, I was on... Broadway in two weeks in Hair, the revival. No I stood in line with the open open call with all maybe five hundred people, and we it was raining and we were partying and uh, and I, 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 by the time I got in there, I decided I was going to sing Flesh Failures for the audition for <gasps> Tom O'Horgan, uh -huh. and also I didn't know that Milos Forman was there. 
I didn't know oh who goodness. that was anyway. Right. I didn't know anybody, so I could have some fun. I told them, I've changed my song. I'm doing Fresh Failures. I've written the words out on my hands because I've just decided this. <laughs> I was like that. Oh, it was the wrong key. I like, ah, facing the dog. Okay, they said, okay, get out of here. They kicked me out. It was just too much of a farce. But I got the callback. I got five callbacks. What? Five callbacks. So eventually I learned flesh failures. I also learned that it wasn't a happy song. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like, please stop. You know, just like it's a party. And then I had to, I had to research the song. But you know when you're in line with a bunch of kids and they would tell you, do this, do that. Yeah. We were all singing all day. So anyway, <laughs> O'Horgan chose me. God bless him. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so did Milos. So mm-hmm. that summer, I did the, the play on Broadway, which O'Horgan, O'Horgan made sure we didn't open for the longest time. We previewed forever. And I did the movie in the day. It almost killed me. Yeah. You know, because I was just singing all day long and running from one studio down to work and everything. But it's what you can do when you are young. Of course. Was that your first big union job? I mean, is that how you got your equity card? Oh, my first union job. Well, when I went to school, the Goodness School right. of Drama, they had a guest artist. Ah, oh, the net Carroll came mm. oh. to, to stay for wow. the whole semester. We did all kinds of exercises. She turned us on to lots of uh, method work. And we did The Crucible. I played Abigail. Huh. And one day she says, I want the choir, I, the church involved, because when Abigail is, is seducing John Proctor, I want the choir to be singing Peace Be Still. Mm. I wish someone knew Peace Be Still. <laughs> I said, I know it. Huh? Teach them, darling, teach them. And she went away. When she came back, I was teaching them. She goes, oh, darling, darling, you can sing. And I said, yes, I can. And that's when she said, you'll go to Spoleto this summer with us. I said, how much does that pay? She goes, it's free. We're, you know, it's, a, it's a theater festival. It's free. I said, I have to go work at Camp Opportunity because I have to make money to come back to school. I was a camp counselor. And back then, those government jo- jobs for, this, for us uh, for, that they had for summer jobs was wonderful. And I could make mm-hmm. money and come back to school. And I... I was a camp counselor at a day camp that really was for underprivileged kids. It was glorious. And I did that for, I think, three years. Um, and, uh, but she said, okay, then you'll do Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. I have a bus and truck tour going out um, top of the spring. And I did. And <laughs> that taught me a lot. You yeah, know? I bet that was, yeah. That taught me how to do a musical. Well, they yeah. didn't teach me. It was my intro to musicals because yeah. Ain't Misbehaving was my teaching place. That's yeah. where I learned everything. Mm-hmm. I said to them one day in re- early on in rehearsal to uh, Armelia, Nell, Ken, Andre, I said, guys, do you think we're going to be a hit? Andre said, darling, we are a hit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, how dare you? <laughs> 
you see, oh, the limousines were lined up around you know Manhattan Theater Club when we did this uh, you know off Broadway. Are you kidding yes. me? Yes. Jackie O came three times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so curious. Going back to Vanette Carroll, what are some of the lessons that she taught you that you still take with you today as an artist? She said, "Trust yourself. You have to trust yourself." If you don't trust yourself, everybody can see it, everybody can smell it, and nobody wants to be around that. But if you trust yourself, even if you're walking into a new job, you don't know anything about it, you trust your ability, mm-hmm. you trust your training, mm-hmm. you trust your foundation, trust mm-hmm. yourself. Nobody else is going to do that for you. It will get you everywhere. You know, that's what she taught. And she would also taught me, she would say, to people, darling, I'm working for the peace. I'm just working for the peace. She let us know everybody's always working for the play, not for our careers. So you might be fired. Mm. We're working for the peace. You know, so if people are working for the peace, rise up and take care of yourself. Because if you are not are you if you are undeniable if you are not undeniable you can be pushed away mm-hmm, that's right that's fantastic and Such thank you for lessons. thank you for mentioning her where we uh we like to bring her name up as many times as we Jeanette can Carol Mickey Grant when yes. i met her yes. at my rehearsal she was at those rehearsals Mickey Grant and that's where we made friends and she oh my goodness i had, she said i wanted to be on broadway so i wrote a play I never forgot that. I never forgot that. She was a lyricist, a composer, a a, a musician, a singer, an actor. And she said, I want to be on Broadway. And so she wrote a play. What a great... That that never left me. Never left me. Yeah, special. What a great lesson. And it's something, obviously, you embraced... As as your career went on, right to to, yeah, to write your own I, stories. I did fifteen years of musicals, yeah. and mm-hmm. I couldn't back then. You were a singer, a dancer, or an actor. Mm. You were not many things like they are today. Everybody mm. loves that, you know. Yeah. Back then, recording artists didn't have to write their own work. Now that's all they want mm-hmm. is that you sing and and write your own. But mm. back then, uh, every I couldn't even get an audition at the Negro Ensemble Company. I asked Larry Riley, who was in there. I said, Larry, he was like uh, my brother. Larry, please uh, tell them I really need to be a part of that. I just need an audition. I'm ready with all the... And do you know what? They said, no, she's a singer. She's a singer. She's a singer. I had no auditions for anything that wasn't music. And that's why I left New York City. Yeah. Um, I got a review from Frank Rich that said, oh, for the third time, I'm going to tell you, I saw Charlene in a play and she was lovely. And I, for the third time, I'll say, go see this play to see what Charlene is doing. But let me tell you, Charlene Woodard ought not be so available. Mm. That's what the review said. And I was Mm. sick of, uh, the only people who knew that I was an actor were my acting teacher, Geraldine Barron, from the Actors Studio. I was, um, I, I, I got into the Actors Studio as an observer. Mm-hmm. And then I moved on up. You, you move on up right. finalist until finally you remember. But I studied with Geraldine Barron. And 
did that's where I felt complete mm-hmm. working without singing without energy that kind of energy using a different set of muscles because I I was asked to come to Sundance Film Lab and work on a thing and Juliet Taylor called me I was in Paris at the time just hanging out <laughs> and she, she called me and said you know do you want to go to Sundance what is that Robert Redford's blah blah film um, lab and I went and I played a woman who didn't sing and she was a decrepit woman from the old days, you know, she honky-tonk days, and she had, was drinking herself to, to death. So she was being carried around in a wheelbarrow because she was paralyzed. And, oh, she was so full of drama! And I loved it! And I, and I worked it! And you see all those actor studio people, Pete Masterson and, um, you know, uh, Joanne Woodward, they were up there at that actor studio. Paul Newman, and they they invited me as a, to come as an observer at that time, yeah. and that changed me. Man, I'm really I'm I'm singing these musicals, but I'm working on these. I'm at the studio every, every twice you know twice a week, and we're there, and and I'm a part of all these people that feel like we're in church when we get into the studio, you know. And we're watching these scenes. You think a scene is brilliant. And then, you know, the moderator will let you know what they have to do. It was great. But so there I was with that review. And I said, okay, I think I can. I need to go to some place where there are only words. And that would be L.A. Mm. All my friends who couldn't work in the theater had come and we're living up in the mountain, in the hills, Hollywood Hills, honey, literally, <laughs> and, and, and doing series and doing their work, you know, Robert Townsend, Angela Bassett, everybody was leaving New York. Everybody was moving to L.A. And um, I had friends, Stuart K. Robinson and Maureen, they said, come stay in our guest room, guest bedroom, and check it out. Um, and they opened the city for me, told me how it works, auditions, blah, blah, blah. And next thing you know, I'm doing commercials and I'm doing um, uh, sitcoms. And, um, and it did work for me. I started working right away. Um, but thank God there was an actor studio out here. Mm. Because then See. I could go and, because I was doing sitcoms and things. And I wanted to keep my chops. Yeah, I keep did the, not want flexing to lose my theater chops. So, Charlene, I'm so curious. How do you go about the process of creating a character? What is your your process? You've accepted a role. Where does your work begin? For a stage role, not a sitcom role. Yes. <laughs> or maybe it's the same. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Or maybe it's the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Say, In the Blood, Susan Laurie Parks Beautiful. wrote a play called In the Blood. And I remember George sent me, George Wolf sent me this script. And I was working in La Jolla at the time. So I, on, I, right before, I went to Del Mar, sat out on a porch, and, and, and had my, at a restaurant. I read this play, and I said, forget it. I am not doing this play. Absolutely not. To the pay phone back then and, le- and left a message for George. This is crazy. I'm not doing this play. It's, it's disturbing beyond belief, I felt. And then... I got in my car and driving down alongside the, 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 the ocean and 
I'm feeling, I see that I'm having an anxiety attack. I can't breathe. And I'm, I'm, I'm losing it completely. I pull over on the road and I got out of the car to try to breathe and, and cry and weep. I wept. Mm-hmm. That play had such a grip on me. And then I got to the theater. I always get there, you know, like an hour and a half early. And I called George. I said, ignore the last um, message, George. I'm definitely doing this play. This play is visceral. This play is dangerous. This play is what I've been praying for. Be careful what you pray for. (laughs) (laughs) Because you might get it. You know? And um, I got that. Um, we had a long time. First of all, we had a lot of time to pull it together, which is important for an original play. And uh, I was living, they put me up in the, in the village and uh, because I was living out here at the time in LA. And what I did right away was focus in on all the homeless people Mm. because Hester La Negrita was homeless, illiterate and lived under a bridge with her five kids. So the first thing I did was just suss out every homeless woman I could find as I would go back and forth to the public theater. So when I found my homeless lady that I knew, I looked at her and I could see her every day in that vacant doorway. I followed her home in my imagination. I saw her toenails, I saw her fingernails, I looked in her eyes. One day I, 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 gave, I went to give her an orange and she said, fuck you. That told me a lot. Yeah. And then I've got this director, David S. Bjornsson, who loves the dark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and I trusted him. I'm working with Reggie Montgomery, Gail Great, Dee Dee, Dee Dee, um, Dee Dee O'Connell, brilliant. Yeah. cast. They were my babies. Mm-hmm. And I'm the oldest of five kids. I know about loving a bunch of kids. I know about being responsible for a bunch of kids. This I could just bring right in there. Mm-hmm. I remember George came to one of these rehearsals, early rehearsal, and then she said, what is this love fest? <laughs> this woman is, 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 is homeless. This woman is, is hardened. This woman, you know, you know, how do you, now that, then I realize, okay, I've got my foundation of love. And now I could be like, you know, sit your ass down, go on over there and sit down. You know, those kind of mothers. Right, right, you know, right. You see in, in Target. Yes. And uh, so I work like that. I do personalizations. Uh, I do sensorial work. I observe. I'm, I think observation is the key to every actor's work. Yeah. You know, observing honestly like and having empathy what do you look for charlene out of a director what to you is the ideal director actor relationship or collaboration you know that that is the word that's what i love in a director i have been very fortunate to work with amazing directors george wolf s bjornson daniel sullivan you know, what I like is right away, I don't want to, to the director, I want to feel as if they know me. 
I'm not some new entity that they're finally meeting for the first time. Mm -hmm. Here's this, you know, I like for them, I can tell when a director sees my humanness and, um, and, and trusts my instincts as much as I do, allows me to play. I don't want the director to come in and, you know, a lot of these new directors are very, they're trained, block it. And then we come up with um, reasons for moving afterwards. And what I right. love is when they, we sit around the table forever. I love a director that oh, you like that table work. Because yeah. you can find it at the table, you know, so that when you stand up, yeah, it's awkward once you stand up, but it's not unknown. Mm. You know, you're not lost. Yeah. What if you, if I want, I like directors that take the time to sit and talk about it and really suss out every nook and cranny. And then when we stand up, yes, we have the script in our hands, but we know where we are. We know what we're doing and we know who we're doing it with. And, um, and those directors that also have a vision for the play. Right. I know we're going to find it. I know it's collaborative, but please come with a, let's have, start, have a starting gate. You know? <laughs> An idea. <laughs> exactly. What is your vision for the play? So we're all on that same page. And I love these directors that make it a safe place to play. Mm-hmm. We're called the players. Right. For heaven's sakes. It's got to be safe. We can't be afraid of him. He can't be a tyrant or she can't be a tyrant. And we can't have control issues and all that. No. It's got to be, you know. And I like, I like directors to give me the real thing. You know how George said, what is this love fest? I'm, yes. You know, when I went mm-hmm. to school, they said, we don't tell you what's great. You can feel what's great. We're going to tell you what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And all of you who can't handle that, we'll leave this school. <laughs> <laughs> You know, yeah, that's and I too, really yeah. tell me what you think is wrong. Yeah, yeah. So that we could sort of hmm, let me see, let me think about that. I didn't think about that. Be my third eye. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to be able to trust you to be my third eye. And I, 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 I really, Daniel, George, I, I, you know, I, I really love working with them. Daniel Sullivan directed all four of my solo plays. Yeah, and. Um, I know, you know, everyone's like, uh, now, how, how did you let this white man direct your plays? Right. Because this white man was so human and he knew children. Mm. He's a father. Mm. That's all you have to know is that. And he also, he came with a history of being around uh, very inclusive casts because he was... He took care of hair, the original hair, Daniel Sullivan. He was like stage manager. <laughs> and then he became the guy that went all over the world and set up the companies, Daniel Sullivan. Before he did, before he uh, went to Seattle Repertory Theater yeah. and was artistic director there and worked with Wendy Wasserstein. I figured by working with Wendy Wasserstein, I want to work with him. Yeah. He was I loved her work. I loved her plays. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that he's developing her plays. They up at Seattle Rep, they had this new works uh, festival every year. And it was very inclusive women, people of color, you know. And um, when I went to Seattle, uh, they said, Do you have a director for Pretty Fire? I said, 
uh, they said Daniel could, uh, great, I need him because I don't know my way around his huge stage. <laughs> you know, he knows how to do that. Right. And, um, and right away, I felt like I'd known him my whole life. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. And one day in a break, he said, I, you know, I told a story about my auntie. He goes, Charlotte, in that story you just told, um, write a play about that. And we will do it next year at the New Works Festival. <laughs> now, if Daniel hadn't said that, I never would have written a second play. Because Pretty Fire opened the door for me. And when I did it at Manhattan Theater Club, sold out audiences. Now people knew she could hold down a show without singing and dancing. And right. she can do it for two hours. Hello, this is Betty Davis. Not the young one, the old one. I've been on Matches.com looking for a gentleman who might like to date an actress who loves to smoke and who had a black and white career. And I thought, why am I wasting my money on this when I could merely donate it to those boys at Behind the Curtain? Go to Patreon.com and give all you can. God knows they need it. And do it before you're 122 years old. That's Patreon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Charlene, what inspired you to start writing your story? I came to L.A. And I, as soon as I got here, I joined a church. <laughs> West Angeles Church of God and Christ. <clears throat> and it's a Pentecostal church. It's a mega church. Um, and uh, I joined it because, you know, I grew up in that kind of church back home. Um, and, and immediately upon coming out here and doing, my grandmother died and I was in mourning. Mm -hmm. I signed up for the women's retreat. And then um, uh, about two weeks before the retreat, the bishop's wife, May Blake, Lady May L. Blake called me and said, Charlene, I see your name here and that you're uh, attending the, uh, the retreat. Um, I would like for you to uh, prepare 20 minutes or 25 minutes of song so that we could, um, um, to entertain us on the first night of the retreat. I saw you on Broadway, Bishop and I, and we loved your work. And um, so we would, I would like for you to do that. I said, oh, 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 no. Oh, no. I cannot sing. I am in mourning. 
my grandmother has just died, Lady May. I can't do it. And she goes, I know you'll come up with something. I got off the phone. I went to Harris. Now this is that boyfriend I told you all about. Now yeah. we're married. Oh. We got married when I came to L.A., you know. Um, and um, he says, now he's my husband. I'm like, Harris, I'm in turmoil, and she wants me to come up with some kind of a act and sing, and, and I can only think about grandmama, grandmama. And he says, then talk about grandmama. Mm -hmm. So I said, I will. Because the reason why I am able to sing is my grandmother had a dying wish when we were 12 years old, when I was 12, and she made this dying wish that before she died, she wanted one of her 22 grandchildren to lead a song in the church choir, mm. the Wilbur Temple Church of Christ Junior Church Choir. And we all thought she was going to die. A bunch of us were in the right age to join the Junior Church Choir. We all did. And I sang. Marguerite Johnson gave me a song, and I sang that song, and it brought the church to its feet, and, mm. and, and I, 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 I felt a lot of power then at 12 with a microphone and all that, and um, I said, I mean, she's, my grandmother meant everything to me, mm. and so I wrote the story of how she be I became a performing artist because of her. And then um, I told Lady May that I would need a, a body mic because I'm going to be moving about. And is there going to be a stage? You know, because I'm going to yep. be moving about. And I'm using everything that I know from all the experience I've had in creating new roles for other people and, um, and doing musicals and everything. And I, and I wanted to just talk about her and lift her up unsung hero you know and i went to that retreat and i didn't know that it, it, it was you know basically i wasn't familiar with mega church there were 450 women at that retreat <laughs> and that night the little entertainment it was in a, a gig ball. it was in a ballroom it was a gig it was yeah. in a and and circular tables and I'm sitting there at the table where she put all the um, all the uh, people in show business the, right, the artists yeah so there's you know uh, Latanya Jackson there's mm. you know Cookie Johnson there's all of us who are in in this in, all of us at this table and then they said come put on your lavalier and someone said are you on the program Charlene <laughs> you asked me. Eula Smith says, are you on program? I said, yeah, I'm on program. <laughs> and I must tell you, I was really nervous because I had never been on program where I didn't, that where I had written the script. Right. And threw in little bits of song, bits and pieces, telling the story of how this woman uh, affected my life. Mm -hmm. And I went up there. I was so shaking when they, after they read my introduction, I had to sing my grandmother's favorite hymn just to go from my chair to the stage. And I tell you guys, by the time I made it to that stage, 450 women were singing grandmama's song with me. Oh, wow. Mm. Special. 450 women knew that song. Yeah. 
And then it was like a duet. The call and response, the absolute understanding of every word. I had to stay ahead of them. The silent spots. It taught me about silence that night. How to live through the silence. Mm -hmm. And it taught me how to look at everybody and tell them, live the story for them, not tell it, live it. And they were living it with me. And sometimes you'd see women just stand up as if I was a preacher who was doing well. And you know, you just stand up. I saw their napkins waving in the air. And then I saw them just get so quiet at a time when, you know, it was breathtaking Mm -hmm. that night. And it lasted uh, like 40 minutes because I didn't plan for laughter and Mm -hmm. applause and my having to pull it together. And and afterwards, 450 women lined up that night to hug me and to Mm. say, I'm your new grandmother or thank you for telling my story. And then I I called my husband. I said, Harris, I've got a story. If I add four more to this, I'll have an evening of theater. And so six six months go by and this little theater up on Santa Monica asked me to come and do this play. I'm like, I don't want to work for free. I didn't come out here to work for free, y'all. You know, Equity Waiver Theater in L.A. And then they said, well, we do new works for new um, new writers and if you know of a new writer or something we could do their work for you next Mm. so when it was over the play three character play horrible anyway on the closing (laughs) night they invited me into the theater into the office the party was in the theater the little Mm. theater they threw me the keys to the theater and said because i told them oh good i've got something actually so they threw me the keys to the Oh, wow. Ed said, you're up next. You've got five weeks in the theater. You could create it. And um, can we see the script? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll give it, I'll give it to you in a week. And so I had a week <laughs> to do some stories. Then I said, I'm going to do a reading. Have your board come. And I will uh, talk to them, maybe tell three stories in the style in which I'm going to work. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm winging it. And they came. And one of the producers... Uh, one of the uh, um, board members was a producer uh, for Tom Hanks films, you know, things like that. So they gave me the ability to create this play. I asked my friend Stuart K. Robinson if he would sit in as director. And every day I would call friends to come so I could have somebody to tell a story to. And I would, on my feet, create this play. Mm. And uh, in five weeks. And then we got that love letter from the New York Times. And I sent it to Esther Sherman, who was William Morris' agent for Athol Fugard, John Patrick Shanley. And I said, Esther, I faxed it to her. Tell John Patrick Shanley and Athol Fugard to move over. <laughs> and yes. Esther... Three weeks later, called and said, I got you at Manhattan Theater Club in the spring. Just like that. (laughs) Esther had been my agent when I was with William Morris. And, you know, I wasn't happy there and I left. And she felt that she needed to do something for me. Mm -hmm. And 
Esther was suffering from lung cancer at the time. And I think she was sewing up all the loose ends. And she gave me a brand new career. Part of that, yeah. Brand new career. And for my birthday that year, she said, uh, I got you published. That play, Pretty Fire. Mm. And she gave me a whole new thing. She did. Daniel gave me a second chance at it. And, you know, whenever things get slow, I just write another play. (laughs) Okay. Like Mickey Grant said, you know. (laughs) Are there any plays that you've been working on now in this this very extended downtime we've all been having? Well, yes. I have a new play, a two-character play that I've been workshopping. The last workshop was at the Goodman this Mm -hmm. uh, last Mm -hmm. fall. And it's a mother and daughter. It's quite fierce in myself. So I've been doing that. And I was supposed to do it at Baltimore Center Stage and La Jolla Playhouse. But they have now um, postponed it. So I'll do Baltimore Center Stage in April with my fingers crossed Mm. and the La Jolla Playhouse in in August, and it's being directed by Patricia McGregor. Mm. And um, I've been working on that. But also, since this pandemic came, um, I was asked to teach at the USC School of Dramatic Arts. And I've taught there before. When Luis Alfaro went on sabbatical, I did his solo acting class. Um, And they called me. Because, you know, with all these changes, after we saw George Floyd get killed mm-hmm. before our very eyes, murdered, everybody mm-hmm. thought about change has to happen. And all of these theaters are thinking and, and, and schools are thinking, what about our curriculum? How inclusive are we? I mean, we have, all, we have an inclusive uh, group of students, but we're still doing a Eurocentric thing here. And so... They just came after me and said, Charlotte, I think, you know, it was important to have a black woman on the faculty. <laughs> and they said, what do you want to teach? I said, I can't teach solo because Luis Safaro is doing that. I can't teach scene study because you're doing that, David Warshawski. So what am I going to do? He said, anything you like. And I came huh. up with a course called The Artists in Social Change because I believe we have, as artists, a responsibility to tell the story of the zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. What's going on? It's, it's, when you look at, um, say, the time when there was the civil rights, the same time um, uh, the, the movement for peace movement, get out of Vietnam, all that was happening mm-hmm. at the same time. And the music and the plays and the artwork lets you know just what was happening. And I wanted a class where, and these are MFA students, uh, year one and year two, where they, we would look at what's going on, really dig into our history and the past so that we can know why we're living the way we're living right now. It's the past Mm. that has actually formed this present. And what must we do? There has to be social change. So... Um, let's take all this information that has to do with the pandemic, the election, and racial inequity. Let's, let's explore everything about that that we can in a semester. And then I wanted them for the final to come up with a proposal for a work, mm. not have the work done in a semester, mm. 
but a proposal for work that they can now work on for the next two and three years. So that when they get out of this school of dramatic art, they come out not just an actor looking for a manager and an agent, but they come out as a full creative yeah. with, a, with a play, with a, a series, with a, uh, you know, a, 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 some kind of, an, of, 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 of work that talks about this period right here, 2020. I believe this is going to be like, Years from now, people are going to say, what were you doing during the pandemic? Mm -hmm. That's right. How did you handle, what was that about? And the election, <laughs> those were, these were heady days. Yeah. That election, those, those conventions, this pandemic getting worse and worse, and all of the, the, everybody in the streets calling for change once and for all, all the conversation we have now. And the whole class was, it was a forum for conversation. Mm -hmm. Everybody had to participate. We needed to talk because that's the problem with America. We can't talk about race mm -hmm. without everybody feeling guilty. I said, you right. know, we're always at choice. Don't choose guilt. Mm -hmm. Choose empathy. Choose compassion. When I wrote Neat, and it starts with my Aunt Neat, at like nine months old, was rejected when she was poisoned it had, by mistake. And she was rejected by a hospital nearby because she was a black baby. That's a colored baby. We cannot uh, treat a colored baby here. You're going to have to take that baby over to the colored people's uh, hospital in Savannah. And my grandmother take her daughter all the way. You know, they were rural and get to Savannah and place her in the hands of doctors who would treat a colored baby, you know. And as a result, my aunt lived, but with very severe uh, brain damage. And then I did the play. I had my, one of our best friends was waiting for us afterwards to go to the restaurant. He says, why did you make me feel guilty at the top of the play and, and talk about how she was? I said, why did you feel guilty? Why did you feel guilt about the baby who couldn't be treated and who suffered for the rest of her life? Why didn't you choose compassion and get out of your own butt? Wayne yeah. Boone, descendant <laughs> yeah. of Daniel. Why couldn't you just see the baby and see the dilemma and see the racism? Why did you choose to put it on you like, I didn't have I didn't anything to do with it. Cut it out. Now we're all talking about all of this yeah. and all that fragility and all of that stuff. I'm through with it. We're talking because mm -hmm. conversation is needed just to start change. It was the most exciting semester ever that I've ever taught. And um, my students were amazing. <laughs> and we were all online, you yeah. know, and their proposals were off the chart fire. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I want to ask you, Charlene, you know, when you, when you teach, sometimes you learn more about yourself by the end of the semester than when you had started. What, what do you feel like your students have taught you in this particular class? Oh, first of all, I'm filled with uh, gratitude for uh, having that forum with them every single day. They made, they made me go looking, hunting again for all the information. The 1619 Project. Mm -hmm. cast by Isabel Wilkerson, the, the video of, of um, 
what's his name? Uh, William F. Buckley and uh, the Cambridge debate between William F. Buckley and James Baldwin. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, Moises Kaufman talking about creating the Laramie Project. These are the things I, I wanted to have time with, with Anna DeBeer Smith and mm-hmm. her work. She did something about four Americans and she, it's a TED Talk. And I found they made me look for gold. They made me re-educate myself and, and, and really get to know these people who write. These are artists. We unpack these plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roger Winder Smith came to my class. And two hours with him. And <laughs> thank you. It was fantastic. Griffin Matthews came to my class you know, to talk about what it was like for him. These are actors who are working on plays that mean something to the world and capture the zeitgeist mm-hmm. of the moment. Mm-hmm. Fires, you know, all of that. And, 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 and I remember uh, I wanted to share everything I knew, everything I could find anew, all the history, all the all the interviews, all the essays, I wanted to find them and share it with them because that knowledge is, is gold. It's what we need in order to open up our bag of tricks. We cannot, artists do not have the luxury of living in a bubble. We've got to go to the out of our comfort zones and we've got to go looking for it. And that's what my students made me do. I, you know, just to make a syllabus, it was just like, when I had like two weeks to do it because, mm-hmm. you know, class starts on August 17th and they asked me sometime in July. <laughs> and then even though I had that syllabus, I then kept working. I kept digging. I was exhausted. Every, every, every news, I was on everything, reading everything. Mm. And it was so enriching for me, you know, and then yeah. to share and have them share. Um, it was the really, it was a high point. It was a high point of my uh, theatrical life. This, yeah. this past, you know, six months. Those students are very, very lucky to have you as, <laughs> as their guide and educator. Charlene, a last question for you is, um, let's imagine you can, you know, talk, knowing what you know now about the career, about the world, you could talk to your younger self that's just about to come to New York and start auditioning. What do you know now that you wished you had known then? Well, really, I wish I knew that I would always work. I wish I knew that if I did my job well in the theater, they keep you working in the theater. Mm. Even as you get older and older and older. Playwrights like Jeremy O'Harris need a mother. Yeah. You know, Uh, Lynn Nottage needs a, you know, they all, and, and I like, I wish I knew that I would always work. It didn't occur to me until I was in my 30s. Oh, I'm going to always work. It's what I, you know, it's what I do. And as long as I stay 
in it and stay, you know, I'm still in class with Salome Jens every Wednesday night. We're doing it online now. Mm-hmm. And uh, because, you know, we have to be like violinists. If you don't practice the etudes, then you can't play the concerto. That's right. So when I'm not working, I'm in class. But it, I have been blessed to work all the time and to support myself in the business. And in my 20s, that was just like, I would work so hard to hold, to get the, I gotta get the, and if I didn't work, it was like, I don't have a job. You know, I gotta get, stop that, Charlene, Mm. all that angst. You are trained, you stay oiled up, you will work. I wish I knew that. I did spend a lot of time fretting. Yeah. You know, and like the net said, trust yourself. Mm-hmm. And you know, early on, she could tell you to trust yourself all you want. That's <laughs> another one. We don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It takes a little time. So trust ourselves. And 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 uh, what I could tell my young self is trust yourself. You have enough foundation. Nobody's hiring you to be a 50-year-old woman. They're hiring you to be a young girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You got this. Yeah. You got this. And, you know, on behalf of both of us, and I, I know I speak for all of our listeners, I have to say thank you so much, one, for this fantastic open interview, but also for the incredible work that you've created over your career. You have blessed all of us with your talents, and we cannot tell you how much we appreciate that. Truly. Thank you, Robert. Thank, thank you, Kevin. It's really special. Thank, thank you. you. All right, folks, till next time. I love what you guys are doing. Oh, oh thank you. It's thank you, Charlotte. Joy. It's a joy. It's thank you. Very important work you're doing here. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. We are honored that you support us and are a part of it. Thank you. Till next time, folks. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. You know 
What? Patrick Flynn. What? Beth Amon. I hate this movie. Love Actually? Yes. Me too. But I also love it. Me too. But I hate it. You know what we should do? What? We should get a bunch of people together, split the movie into its 10 storylines, and then figure out this movie one story at a time. You mean people like Keith Powell and Jill Knox Powell from NBC's Connecting? Keith, why don't you show us what porn watching faces? And Washington Post columnist Alexandra Petra. I don't know. I think every Christmas story is a horror story. Do you think it would work? It actually inspired me to plan my funeral. I dig the uh, brothel angle. Every time I think about the trailer, I'm like, I was misled. I love your use of the word shag, by the way. Can I mix your ashes with glitter? It's like eight half screenplays just put in a blender. I am positive I stayed with my ex an extra six months because we saw this in the theater. It will definitely work. What is Love Actually? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download. All episodes out November 27th. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.